So how many of you just love to root for the underdog? What is it about that? What is it about the mismatch? We just look at the team that's weaker or the person that's weaker, the competitor that's weaker, and we just love to see them win. We love to see the strong, arrogant person or team get taken down. Now, I graduated high school 87, so I remember the 1980 Olympics. Does anybody else remember that? The U.S. versus Russia hockey game. You want to talk about a David and Goliath colossal mismatch. Nobody even expected the USA to score a goal, let alone win. And this morning, I was up early. I just watched that clip, the video clip, when the guy says, do you believe in miracles? And it's just bedlam on the ice as the U.S. can't believe that they have just won the gold medal and beaten the Russian hockey team. I don't know what it is about that. And as we get into chapter 8, it's almost like a sports commentator. We've got the Rams and the Bucks in chapter 8. And there's this competition or a confrontation of historic proportions. And we see this on and on over and over throughout history. We see this repeated theme of somebody, a nation or a person starts out small and they rise onto the scene with great power. They conquer and dominate until they become too big for their own britches and then they get taken down and someone else conquers them. And that's the story of our world, isn't it? It's the story of our human history. Now, the challenge as we get into Daniel chapter 8, first thing you'll see is you'll see why skeptics say that the book of Daniel could never have been written when Daniel lived. It had to have been written later on in the second century BC and not in the sixth century BC because the details are just too specific. It reads like history. And so people say, the person who wrote this could not have written it hundreds of years in advance of when it happened because it's too specific. You can read all the debates about when the book of Daniel was written, and I'll leave that to your time. I'm going with the Bible. I think there's plenty of reason to believe that it was written when Daniel lived, 6th century BC, 500 years before Christ. I'll go through some of the dates a little bit as we go through. So you'll see why skeptics think that this was written later, not earlier. The other challenge is not to get caught up. We can get caught up in the details of what does this mean? What does that mean? And how did this work out in history? And this could be just one giant, colossally boring history lesson. So if you like to be bored or you like history, I'll give you just enough during this sermon because I don't want to have you here another hour. So I'll give you some enough to do your own research if you like that. You can go and read more. You've got Google. I've got Google. You've got books. You can go and look these things up. Because what I don't want to do is miss what the chapter is really about. Because God is speaking to our hearts, not just to our historical intellect. And it's so easy to get dialed in on, well, I know the mysteries of Daniel. I know, I know what this is and what that is. And miss what the chapter is really about. But what I want you to pay attention to as we go through... I want you to pay attention to the unfolding action. Where's the strength? Who's rising? Who's falling? And when? Because what God is saying to Daniel at that time is really important for the people in Daniel's time, for Daniel, and even for us now. Important to know how God works in human history. And that's the lesson we've been learning, isn't it? That God rules in the affairs of men. 
He gives kingdoms to whom he will, and he sets over them the lowest of people. So verse 1, as we finished the first six chapters, that was all the activities of Daniel's life. And now we have the visions. We had vision last week, you know, the winged lion, the bear, the leopard, and this great weird beast that rose up with horns and all that. So we had that vision last week. That was during Belshazzar's reign. This week, this chapter, a different vision, but another vision of Daniel. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, that's about the year 550 BC, when King Belshazzar, Babylonian king, Daniel's writing under his reign, in the third year of his reign, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. Not some pseudonym guy that wrote hundreds of years after me. It's me, Daniel, telling you this. After the one that appeared to me the first time, that's chapter seven, I saw in the vision And it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, that's modern Susa in Iran, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. Again, modern day Iran, if you like this, the region of Khuzestan specifically. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. So Daniel's down by the river, great place to be in this vision by the river. And then verse three, he says, then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, the challenging thing of these prophecies in these chapters is that Daniel, he's a passive viewer of these prophecies, of the action, the story unfolding. He sees the whole thing, and then later on he gets the interpretation But we've been through chapters of this, and we can read ahead, so it's kind of strange to just read it as if we don't know what's happening. So there's a spoiler alert here. We kind of know who's being talked about because we read Daniel chapter 2 and the multi-metallic statue that was the head of gold that was Babylon and the chest and arms of silver. And who was that? It was the Medo-Persian Empire. Then we read about the lopsided bear last chapter. Remember him? And then that's corresponding to, again, here we see it, same idea, different picture, different illustration. We have a ram, that's a male sheep, and he's got these two big horns, but one's higher. So the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes started out first, and then you got the Persians that came along a little stronger, and ultimately the Medo-Persian Empire is really dissolved into the Persian Empire itself. So the Persian horn is the bigger horn that came up secondarily. So he sees this ram with uneven horns. You know, you guys know we have a farm. We've had goats and sheep, and we used to have a ram named Richard. So we've had bucks and rams, and bucks smell terrible. And these two were in a pasture that adjoined each other, and they just fought across the gate with each other. And just nothing else to do, they just fought. And we had one of those pipe gate. So it's like hollow, thin-walled steel gate. And these two had flattened the pipe gate between them by just butting into each other constantly through that gate. And they would stumble away, they'd boom, ram into each other, then stumble away, and it was quite a sight to see. But you notice we've departed from the predator motif of chapter 7, and now we've got these horned beasts that have strong bodies and strong horns, and they bury their head down and drive forward. So that's what verse 4 says, I saw the ram pushing westward, 
So again, we got the Medo-Persian Empire pushing westward toward the Mediterranean Sea, northward and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. So the ram is pictured as super tough, the super tough ram. Nothing, no animal can escape him. No one can fight against him. He does whatever he wants and notice what he became. What's it say there? He became great. He did according to whose will? His will. So you've been studying. You're students of the scriptures. You know enough now that you can predict without even knowing what comes next, what's going to happen to the ram. Is he going to live happily ever after? Or is he going down? See, you guys are brilliant prophetic people already. You know how God works. And as I was considering, looking at this powerful ram, suddenly a male goat, a buck, came from the west, from Greece. Now, Daniel doesn't know that here, but we do. He comes across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That's my kind of buck, my kind of goat. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. So it's like a unicorn goat. And then he came to the ram that had two horns. So we got one horn goat, two horn ram, two lopsided horns. What a picture. Which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with furious power. So we see this confrontation about to happen. Daniel's watching it going, oh my goodness, what is going to happen in the scene, the single horn of the buck versus the double horn of the ram. And you're expecting as the ram is being run at furiously by this goat, you're just waiting for the collision going, man, what is going to happen? There's a territory, a dominant fight happening with these two. Notice how the action takes place. This ram seems to be doing great. And then how does this goat come on the scene? Slowly over time, suddenly, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this goat appears. Verse seven says, and I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram and broke his two horns. You'll find out later on this relationship, I call it relationship between Alexander the Great, who is that dominant unicorn horn of the goat, Alexander the Great, his confrontations with Darius III of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Persian emperor, it's a confrontational situation as Alexander the Great begins to take over the empire from Darius. And we'll talk about some of those battles as we go on. But the thing to notice is that as the action is happening, that ram, remember, no one could conquer him. He was just doing whatever he wanted to do, full reign, full power. And then this horn comes, attacks him, and all of a sudden, his two horns are broken. And look what the next part of verse 7 says. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. What happened to the ram? And this was a powerful ram. Then all of a sudden, some goat comes along, and all of a sudden, the ram's got no power. So there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. It's as if, and I say that in quotes, there is some other power at work in all of this. It's a very unusual scene, like a scene from Animal Planet. Verse 4, the ram was most powerful, but now the buck is most powerful. Now let's see what happens to the buck. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, 
(laughs) The large horn was what? Broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Again, that would be north, south, east, and west, the four directions. So you could say the buck stops here, but not completely. So Alexander the Great was the first ruler of the Grecian Empire, starts small, Macedon, northern Greece, and he conquers the known world, most of it, in about 10 years. I mean, he is just a young guy, a brilliant chess-like tactician on the military battlefield. I mean, some would say he has just been unrivaled in all of human history in terms of his military prowess and excellence. Roman historian Quintus Curtius Rufus stated that Alexander had a lust for glory and fame, reaching a degree which exceeded due proportion. But then the interesting thing about Alexander the Great, he dies suddenly and mysteriously at age 32. After 12 days of suffering, and that's in about 323 BC, guess where he dies? He's in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon. He set up his capital there, and that's where he dies. People have all kinds of theories as to how he died. Was it alcoholism? But he suffered for 12 days, and then he dies suddenly, 32 years old. You see, that's what you have to see here is notice when the horn was broken, when it became weak. That's what we tend to think, oh, when people get weak, it's when I get weak, that's when I'm vulnerable. Not in God's economy. In God's economy, when you get too strong. Now, again, strength being determined as self-determined strength. I mean, think about David and Goliath. I think that's a great scene. David was confident, wasn't he? But Goliath was cocky. David was confident because he was fighting for his God, not himself. And there's a difference there. But biblically speaking, the issue for this big, very great, strong, large horn, the bigger thing is, the easier it is to break. The higher you build a house of cards, the bigger you get. The more you have to sustain yourself, the easier it is to succumb to pride and to be destroyed. Now, Daniel, remember, is writing this about things that are going to happen 200 years in the future. Remember, we started out about 550 BC, and now with Alexander the Great, we're at about 323 BC. It's a repeating theme that God wants us to notice. Look at verse 9. So the big horn is broken, but that's not the end of the story of the goat. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So there's this little horn, this little remnant that comes out of, did you notice there were four notable horns that came up? And we'll talk about them in a little bit. It's when Alexander dies, There's about 15 years of chaos as the generals sort of duke it out for who's going to be in charge. And he doesn't have an heir to give his kingdom to. So Alexander the Great turns it over to the strongest. And those were four generals, one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, and one in the west. And we'll talk about those in a little while. And out of one of them came this little horn. One of them became prominent. And it grew exceedingly great toward the south. So it has to be a northern horn. It has to be from the north. And toward the east, it has to be northwest and toward the glorious land. And the glorious land would be Jerusalem, the Holy Land. And it grew up or magnified to the host of the mass of heaven. It cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. So now we have this little horn 
now trampling and being magnified. And Daniel doesn't know the identity. I mean, he's just seeing this vision, this strange vision. We, looking back, can make some assumptions, make some parallels as to how this fits in historically. And historically, you look back and it fits the scene, the personality, the history of a guy named, does anybody know? Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus IV. Now we're plus 375 years in the future from Daniel. Daniel's being told things that aren't going to happen for 375 years. Now our nation's only, what, 250 years old? He's looking 375 years. Remember, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. So Antiochus Epiphanes rules the area of Judea from 175 to 164. He assumes the title of Theos Epiphanes, meaning the manifest God. You think he's humble or proud? Which would you guess? You know, when he introduces himself, he says, hi, I'm the manifest God. And who might you be? That's how he would introduce himself. I am God in the flesh. Now, this guy was an absolute terrorizing lunatic. He was the Hitler of his day. And he did more harm and destruction to Jews and Judaism. So much so that they like play on words. They would call him not Antiochus Epiphanes. They would call him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman. And notice he grows not just horizontally, but where else does he grow? He grows vertically. And it seems that he grows, even exerts his power against the host of heaven, against God's people. And he uses the fullness of his power to destroy Jews, to destroy Judaism. And we'll get into that more as we see later on in the chapter. Verse 11 says, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. Who do you think that might be? Now you can say it. Jesus. So you see all throughout history, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Antiochus Epiphanes or Adolf Hitler or whoever, these characteristics that are reproduced in the spirit of Antichrist. What you see in Hitler, Hitler wasn't the Antichrist, but he had a lot of those characteristics. Many world leaders have had the characteristics of Antichrist, but none of them will have attained to his fearful self that you see in the book of Revelation. But all throughout history, these same characteristics keep rising up and rising up and rising up. So he exalts himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary, capital H, God's sanctuary, was cast down. So the ram, the goat, they're trampling on other people, but this horn actually tramples down the things of God. God's patient but he's got an ending point. There's a time when God says, okay, you've gone far enough. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and this is the remarkable part, he did all this and prospered. Passages like this and the accuracy with which it describes this guy Antiochus Epiphanes are reasons that people can't believe Daniel was written in the 6th century. So the four generals that rise up, the one in the north is the Seleucid dynasty. There's Seleucus and Ptolemy, and he's in the south, and Antigonus. And these are the generals that have taken over after Alexander the Great. And 
Antiochus Epiphanes comes out of what's called the Seleucid dynasty. And he casts truth down to the ground and he prospers. And that's the thing that when we live this in real time, we think God is good. How can he let these things happen? God is working out a plan in human history because wherever God sees pride, even in his own people, he will crush it because it's misplaced. Wherever he sees pride, and Psalm 73, Asaph writes Psalm 73, and he has that great question that we all have. God, why do the wicked prosper? Why do those people who hate you prosper on planet Earth? Isn't that the great question of the ages? Why do wicked people prosper? Why does God deal with them? Because God is using wicked people for his own purposes. God uses pride over here. He harnesses this person's pride to conquer this person's pride over here. And then God harnesses someone else's pride to conquer that pride. And God just uses all of these prides on planet earth until he finally brings the whole thing to an end and brings his humble son to set up the kingdom that never ends. Why does Jesus's kingdom never end? Because he's never subject to pride. He's humble. So God never has to humble his son because his son is already humble. It is the nature of God to be humble. And he rewards humility. Yet why is it that as human beings, we always want to be bigger or stronger or faster or greater or exalt ourselves above that person or tell other people how great we are? We want to be worshiped. We want to be recognized. We want to be known and respected. Watch what happens. So he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and he prospered. And now there's this dramatic pause At the height of this little horn's greatness, we get this pause. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the vision be? What's the time frame? Isn't that what we all want to know? What's the time frame? That's where people have gone astray all throughout history is, when is Jesus coming back? Well, I'm going to predict it's here. We think it's here. We always want to know how long. How long will the vision be? concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. I mean, how long will this go on? And God doesn't say, you know what? I don't know. It's kind of not up to me. Does God say that? He says exactly how long. Verse 14, and he said to me, it's almost as Daniel, he hears this holy one speaking, that Daniel is sort of listening to it, But then the conversation turns to him, and he said to me, for 2,300 days, and if you like to take notes, you can write next to days, evening mornings. That's literally what it says. We're back in Hebrew now, evening mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So remember, a Jewish day is evening and morning. Like I said, I was up till 2.30 in the morning, just reading, 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 and there's different opinions, and there's different suggestions. Because it says 2,300 evening morning, some say he's speaking of the evening and the morning sacrifices. So it's actually half of that because there's two sacrifices a day. So some believe it's 1,150 days that this will go on. And some believe that 2,300 years. Now, this is kind of interesting. I Googled when was the sanctuary cleansed? Just that simple statement. I Googled it. And you know what I got? A lot of stuff on Seventh-day Adventist history. And I didn't know this, but I learned it last night. 
The Seventh-day Adventists, this older teaching from some time ago, was that the 2300 days were actually day years. They represent 2300 years, and that took up to 1844, and that's when Jesus was going to come back. So prior to that time, they believed Jesus was going to come, and in 1844, he was going to come and cleanse the sanctuary, which was the sanctuary of planet Earth. That was what they believed this meant. Reading Daniel chapter 8. The sanctuary is the earth, and Jesus would cleanse it by fire and establish his new earth. What was the year? 1844. But guess what? 1844 came and went and left a lot of people confused, disappointed, and discouraged because everybody thought for certain that's when Jesus is coming back. They misread prophecy, set a date, and they were wrong. But that didn't stop Seventh-day Adventism carried on and said, well, instead, in 1844... Actually, what happened, Jesus, he began a day of atonement in the heavenly sanctuary that cleansed in 1844. And then it just gets more ridiculous from there. So the Jews were divided. There were those that wanted Greek culture, and Antiochus was sort of aligned with them. It was financially prosperous for him. But then there were the Jews, the predecessors of the Pharisees, wanted to get back to good old-fashioned Judaism. But the others were the predecessors of the Sadducees, and they loved Greek culture. They were aligned with Antiochus. But there was this huge division, and eventually there was wars against Antiochus. There was a rebellion, the Maccabean Revolt. Maybe you've heard of that. And Antiochus is overthrown. The temple that he had desecrated, I'll tell you about that in a little bit, they cleanse, and that's 2,300 days after it was desecrated. And guess what's celebrated at that time? Hanukkah. Hanukkah that Jesus celebrates, I think it's John chapter 10, is the celebration of the cleansing of the temple, the remembrance of the cleansing of the temple that had been desecrated by this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. How is it desecrated? Stay tuned. It's coming right up. Verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Could be Jesus. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, you thought he was only around for Jesus's birth. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face, which is the common reaction to seeing an angelic presence. There's so much nonsense out there about Here's my seven audio tapes or my CD set on how I got this message from an angel. If you see an angel, you're going to be on your face, like absolutely astounded by what's happening to you. So that's where Daniel ends up. He came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, human, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Again, what does he mean by that? The time of the end could be the time of the end of the empire of this little horn that is against the people of God and persecuting and desecrating the temple. Could be the time of the end of the Seleucid dynasty, the Greek empire. It could be, but it could also be the time of the end, the end of all human government when God ends human history, so to speak, the government of human history and starts his own reign. This could be the end referred to, and it could be both. Because in the Bible, oftentimes there's a near fulfillment of prophecy 
and there's a far fulfillment. Think about, just by way of example, think about Isaiah chapter 7. The virgin shall bear a child as a sign to Ahaz, and his name will be called what? You guys know it. We talk about it every Christmas. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's a prophecy that comes from Isaiah chapter 7. There had to have been a near fulfillment because it was a sign to Ahaz. How do you have a sign to a guy that doesn't happen for hundreds of years in the future? It can't be. So there had to be a near fulfillment of that child being born that was the sign. But then we also find out that that was the full fulfillment. That was a partial there in Isaiah. The full fulfillment of that is in Jesus. That's what was really being talked about. So when you read prophecy, sometimes there's a near fulfillment. There's something that's happening then, but it's also speaking of Jesus or some future time as well. And I think that's what we have here. There's a reason when churches, when pastors endeavor to do a study in the book of Daniel, it usually involves chapters one through six, and that's it. Most pastors will avoid, understandably, some of these latter chapters of Daniel. They're challenging. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. If you like to take notes, indignation, you can write anger or you can write to froth at the mouth. The latter time of frothing at the mouth and anger that is sort of produces that. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. So the thing to notice again is with all of this, there is an appointed time. 2,300 days. Like you can't change that. God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you, the bad news is it's not for 2,300 days, but the good news is it's in 2,300 days. I mean, there is an end. There is an end to things. There's an end to broken hearts. There's an end to broken systems. There's an end to broken humanity. We get glimpses of that in our lives now, but they're just glimpses. In the latter time of the indignation, and so this is speaking of a time in the future when all of this is at this appointed time when God wraps all of this up. And that's what an appointment is, a mutually agreed upon time and place. When you make an appointment, someone makes an appointment with you to say, okay, I want you to meet me here at this time. There's a specific time and place. And now we get the specific interpretation as you've been getting pieces of it all the way through. Verse 20, Daniel, the ram which you saw having the two horns, you already know it ahead of time. They are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, Daniel's still in the Babylonian Empire. This hasn't happened yet. And the Babylonians think that they're unconquerable. Belshazzar's partying it up, thinks that they're impenetrable. So this is radical. Daniel, just watch. Just watch me work. That ram, that's Media and Persia. Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Kingdom of Greece is a nothing at this point. There's just a tiny little nothing. It's no world power at all. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, whose name is Alexander the Great. And he moves west to east from northern Greece across into modern Turkey, conquering port cities, then turning inland and flying across Asia Minor. He comes up, he turns around at Syria, and he heads south along the Mediterranean coast. He wins two decisive battles against Darius III. Again, this is where I'm just giving you 
information, you can look up the details. One, the Battle of Issus. Greeks were outnumbered two to one. Alexander seized Darius. like The goat seized the ram. And through the military alignment, he charges furiously at Darius, who's on the battlefield. And Darius retreats. Then later at the Battle of Galgamelus, 331 BC, Alexander the Great gets an unbelievable victory. 26 years old. He's brilliant how he splits the Persian line and again creates a whole, sees Darius and charges after him like that goat heading after that ram. Eventually, Darius escapes and eventually he's assassinated by one of his own subjects. But interesting note, one interesting history, because I love to see history and Bible interact and cross paths. As Alexander the Great heads south, guess what city he passes through as he's heading down through, let's say, Israel? What city do you think he might pass through? Jerusalem. And he has a dream, we're told, about the high priest in Jerusalem. So he goes in and he has this meeting with the high priest. The high priest brings out none other than the scroll of, can you guess, Daniel. And guess what chapter, what part of the scroll he opens up to, what we would call Daniel chapter 8, and he shows it to Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great goes, huh, that must be me. Extremely encouraged because he hasn't fully conquered Darius at this point. But he's greatly encouraged by the word of God because he sees himself in the pages in Daniel 8. Isn't that cool? Maybe I just get excited about that stuff. This is what Josephus writes. When the book of Daniel was shown him, Alexander the Great, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the empire of the Persians, he supposed that himself was the person intended. And as he was then glad, he dismissed the multitude for the present. He was favorable to Jerusalem. So for about 15 years, again, there's chaos. Generals turn on each other for power and compete. Verse 22 says, as for the broken horn, that's Alexander the Great, and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So 308 BC, there's a fourfold division of the Greek empire, Alexander's empire, Cassander in the west, Antigonus in the north, Seleucus in the east, and Ptolemy in the south. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, and here's where it gets kind of interesting, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. So the latter time of whose kingdom? The latter time of the kingdom of these four. Again, that notable horn that comes up is Antiochus Epiphanes. It could be the Greek empire and Antiochus. The abomination of desolation that Daniel's going to speak of, that Jesus speaks of, could be the fullness of the transgression. Here's what Antiochus does. He changes the name of Yahweh. I mean, just to dig, he takes out his anger on the Jewish people. He changes the name of Yahweh to Zeus Olympus. He orders the Jews to sacrifice pigs to Zeus. He prohibits Sabbath day celebrations, circumcision, and festivals. And he sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple. And if you know about Jewish history and Jewish custom, the pig was an absolutely unclean animal. And to sacrifice the pig on the altar at the temple is the ultimate in blasphemy. So it could be referring to the latter time of their kingdom, and that's when the transgressions had reached their fullness, or it could refer to all human self-rule and a future time, or it could refer to both in a sense. 
prophecy is funny like that. Prophecy can span within one sentence hundreds or thousands of years. And then here's what happens. When the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. Now, this could be Antiochus, but some of this stuff doesn't fit with the picture of Antiochus Epiphanes. So it could be looking forward to the ultimate in horrible, godless world leadership, and that's to the Antichrist himself. Look what it says. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Who's going to be the powering behind the Antichrist? Satan, the dragon. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also who? The holy people. Again, like all the others, trampling, growing, conquering, and persecuting the people of God. Look at verse 25. Through his cunning, that's literally intelligence or wisdom. Remember, wicked people aren't stupid. People that are godless are not dumb. I mean, spiritually dumb, maybe. Rebellious, maybe. But there's some brilliant people. They have brilliant minds. God gives people all kinds of gifts. And you are never more fully walking in who you were created to be when you take the gifts that God has given you and you use them for his purposes. But some people take the gifts that God has given them and they use them for their own wickedness, to promote their own gain. So just because a person is wicked doesn't mean they're dumb. The Antichrist is not going to be stupid, going to be extremely intelligent. And I believe intelligent about human nature, intelligent about how to manipulate people through his cunning ability to manipulate. He shall cause deceit or fraud. He's going to be a fraud, but he's going to be so convincing. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Part of the manipulation is that people will be rewarded for lies and misrepresentations of themselves. What's true doesn't matter. Only what people think is true. That sounds like it could be familiar. And again, we see glimpses. You think things are bad now. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. That is probably the saddest of all the things we read here. The real issue is the distorted identity of his heart. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity by providing security, prosperity. He'll set people up to take them down. People will be lulled into a false sense of security. So the Antichrist is going to be really convincing. Even though he's going to be doing some godless things, people are going to go, well, he's really bringing peace. The economy's good. Everything's good. It's bringing peace. So let's just accept him. And then the Antichrist will set himself up to be worshiped as God in the temple in Jerusalem, just like Antiochus did at his time. So history does what, folks? History repeats itself. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. We know who that is. But he shall be, you knew it was coming. He shall be what? Broken without human means. Antiochus, if you want to relate it to him, didn't die in battle, wasn't assassinated. History tells us that he had some sort of disease or madness of some sort that killed him. But if you think about it as the Antichrist, remember the statue? By the time you get down to the feet, the legs of iron, then by the feet, iron mingled with clay, what happens in that vision? The stone comes out of nowhere and smashes the whole statue. So Jesus comes back and destroys the kingdom of the Antichrist. 
and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Daniel says, you can trust it. It's reliable. Daniel's not saying, I'm not lying to you. He's saying, what I've just told you is reliable. What would you give for a source of reliable information? Well, you have it. We have reliable information that's been proven. History doesn't prove the Bible is true. The Bible proves that history is true. Historians can rewrite history, but the Bible says that that must be true. It's reliable. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. Verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Look at the response he has to it. When he has a revelation from God of the future, it makes him sick for days. He goes into some kind of funk. It affects him physically. When's the last time you can say you watch the news, the birth pains our world is going through? And if you could really think about what's coming, that's why this is such a hard study because the future for our planet is not very bright. You've read Revelation. You know what the tribulation time is going to be about. I don't have to tell you. We're watching governments from Venezuela to China just crushing people. What's wrong with our world? We are. It's inhabited by proud, sinful humanity, and it makes Daniel sick. But I like what he does. He says, afterward, I rose and went about the king's business. Isn't that good advice for you? Get up out of your chair, quit yelling at the TV, get off of Facebook, close your Instagram, and get about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So one of the things I take away from this is I'm glad Daniel's honest. I don't understand all of that. And I'll tell you, you know, I don't understand all of this, but I understand the most important things. So what's the takeaway? God doesn't just know the future. He determines it. Sometimes we look at God like, oh, okay, God, he has foreknowledge, which means things are happening and God just knows what they are. God knows the future because he creates the future. Everything has already been done and God dwells outside of time. So if I make an appointment with you, if I can tell you I'm going to be at Cup of Joe tomorrow at noon, that's because I've determined I'm going to be at Cup of Joe tomorrow at noon. That's why I can tell you with such certainty that that's where I'm going to be because I decided that's where I was going to be. And I told you, I let you know. So God has decided some things are going to happen and he's just letting us know. So God doesn't just know the future. He determines it. So many people think the world is just chance events carried along without any direction or any involvement that God, if you didn't believe in God, that he wound up the world and he set it free and it's now demands human reason to make things happen. What a joke that is. What a mess. So God has sustained us. He's still sustaining us right now. Why? Because not everybody that's going to get saved is saved. He's waiting until there's no more chance. And then he'll wrap it all up. He'll bring an end to Gentile rule. He'll set up his kingdom and he'll get on with it. Number two, God is patient and he's also consistent. God will let wickedness prosper for a time for his purposes. But God always will crush pride and reward humility. Be patient and let God do his work. You can look at the world and you can watch the news and you can do all those things and you can be so frustrated. It doesn't make it easier to endure it, but at least, you know, hang around a while, God will take care of it. You don't have to be God. You don't have to take people down that you don't like. 
You don't have to take people down. Your job is to love people you don't like. Your job is to pray for people who are mean to you, not to take them down. God's job is to take them down, get out of his way, because he's using that person, maybe to humble you. What does this say about America? I think the great institutionalized sin of America and of the world, but of America predominantly right now, can you guess what I'm going to say? Is pride. People reject authority. There's a promotion of sin. There's a rejection of God. Everybody's about the pride of my group, the pride of my group, the pride of my group. We are living in a time of unprecedented pride in America. Now you've read the story. What do you think God is going to do? He's going to humble. And I think we're seeing God is merciful in his humbling, isn't he? He's merciful in his discipline. But been just simply 250 years for our country. Short, short time. And we go from guys like George Washington, who could have been king. He could have been the first king of the United States of America. He wasn't interested in power. Wasn't subject to pride like that. He was a humble man. But now we have a system that rewards and elevates pride. And if God doesn't deal with it with us, he owes Alexander the Great and Nebuchadnezzar, he owes them all an apology. What's it say about me? What's it say about you? You have to know, you have to know all through the Bible, whether it's King Saul, when God elevated King Saul and then Saul got too proud. It says, is it not true that when you were insignificant in your own eyes, you became head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord chose you when you were humble, chose you to be king. But then when he became too proud, God said, oh, can't use you anymore. And then look at King Uzziah, reigned for 52 years. As long as he was seeking the Lord, God made him prosper. But the minute he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction and he transgressed against the Lord. Pride and humility are determined with respect to our relationship to God. A humble person yields themselves to God. A proud person does not. At the simple way to determine pride and humility. The Pharisee and the tax collector, the hardest hitting chapter in the New Testament, Matthew 23, Jesus rails against the religious of the day. This happens in the church. Matthew 23, the hardest hitting chapter in the New Testament. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Like I started, do you believe in miracles? I think one of the greatest things about heaven is that it'll be filled with love. And by the way, love, there's no arrogance in love, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Heaven will be filled with love and completely devoid of arrogance. There will be no arrogant person in heaven. 